Well, hello again, everybody, and welcome to another Around the World in 80 Cigars with me, Nick Hammond. I hope you're all keeping well, keeping busy, um, and making the most of things as best you can. I think that's all we're trying to do at the moment. Um, I would like to introduce you to someone who, um, who's been a pal of mine for, for a while now, and uh, a really interesting man, and I think you're going to enjoy chatting to him. Um, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit sort of left field what he does, but it's very, very interesting. This week's guest is what I would call a man for all seasons. He's an adventurer. He's a relentless entrepreneur. Um, he's a bit of an action man. He's definitely a survivor. Uh, as a teenager, he led hundreds of men in manoeuvres across the plains of Africa. Maybe he'll tell us about that. Uh, he thinks nothing of leaping off a perfectly respectable hill with nothing but a, a small handkerchief of material above him. He skis ferociously, he tells me, and he never sits still. He's carved a niche in a small section of the market that is beginning to show exponential growth. And he's, on top of all of those things, a very loyal and dependable friend. This week, I am delighted to be going around the world in 80 cigars with Jay Emery of Bushman Ovens. Morning, Jay. Morning, Nick. Oh, wow, you say such nice things about me. I'm, I'm sure the dragon, my wife, wouldn't agree with all of them, but uh, <laughs> yeah, such nice, kind comments. Thank you so much. Let me give folks a bit of background. So I met Jay um, probably a year and a half ago or something, um, maybe even a bit more than that, uh, and it was regarding a piece I was writing. And I've always been, you know, I've been getting more and more into my sort of cooking and and. And I've always loved outdoorsy stuff. And I decided I really, really, well, to be fair, for a long time, I really hankered after an outdoor wood oven. And I, it sort of started with a barbecue. And then I thought, oh, no, what, what I'd really like is one of those great ones with a chimney. And then you can cook this and that. And I sort of daydreamt for months and months and years and years, literally years. And I used to sort of, you know, look at these pictures on the internet and salivate about these amazing ovens. But they cost an arm and a leg. And, you know, uh, it's not the sort of thing you go, tell you what, let's just go and buy an oven unless you happen to have that money kicking about. And the, and, and the wife is always there, um, you know, wanting to get the bathroom done instead or something. So it never really happened. And I ended up writing a story about um, cooking outdoors for a magazine and how emancipating it is to go outside with a few logs and a few utensils and to actually cook some stuff up. Um, and I, that led me to track down Jay of Bushman Ovens. And, uh, and so I phoned him up, we had a chat, and I ended up going on his course to build an oven with him, which was fascinating. And then after that, we became pals, because uh, it's impossible not to, not to become pals with him once you spend some time with him. So that's the sort of background. And, then, um, and, and since, uh, ever since then, I've had one of Jay's ovens in my garden, which I use relentlessly, you know, um, to cook everything you could possibly imagine from bread and to overnight cooks. And, um, and I even cooked Christmas dinner on it last year. Uh, that's how crazy it gets you. So, but before we start with all the oven stuff, I wanted to talk to you, Jay, a little bit more about your background because, um, you know, eagle eared listeners will hear that you're not a local. Yeah, Nick. Um, uh, I guess you can gather from the accent that um, I'm, I'm not English. Who are am you been our kid and all that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I, I now live in in Kidderminster uh, near Birmingham, 
um, but originally from South Africa. So uh, I had my childhood in South Africa and I feel incredibly privileged to have had such an amazing childhood. My parents really did everything that they possibly could. They worked their socks off uh, to give me an education which was second to none and life experiences in the African bush which um, I just don't think can be, be rivaled. So I, I feel incredibly privileged. I lived on a small holding just outside Johannesburg, <clears throat> and my childhood was spent um, milking cows and working out ways of making money. So, you know, the entrepreneur... <laughs> what, uh, what did your dad do then, James? My dad was a scriptwriter, uh, and uh, he, he wrote for a living. My mother was a photographer. Um, and uh, between them, they used to do uh, audiovisual training programs, and their business was very, very successful uh, until such time as uh, um, desktop publishing came out and um, uh, videos. I mean, video cameras literally killed their business overnight. Ah. Um, uh, and, and, yeah, I mean, as a child, uh, if I'd stayed in photography, I would have been like fourth or fifth generation photographer, and it was my passion. When I was a kid, I used to spend um, my weekends, I used to spend my nights in the dark room printing photographs. Uh, I have a friend in America who flies for Delta Airlines, uh, and we did national service together. And I remember him writing to me a couple of years ago when he found me on Facebook and said, geez, Jay, do you know, I still have the photograph that you took of me next to my inspection bed in the army uh, next to my bed now. It's literally one of the few things I have left from South Africa. And it's such a, a great picture. Um, yeah, but even then, you know, even when I was in the army, I was breaking the rules and uh, <laughs> trying to find ways of making money. <laughs> Doesn't surprise me, Jay. Um, tell me a little bit about what was it like back then in South Africa? It was a very, very different place. Um, uh, yeah, um, I mean, uh, I haven't been back to South Africa for many years. I, well, I went uh, a couple of years ago to say goodbye to my father just before he passed. And um, it was a very, very different South Africa. So in, in my youth, you know, uh, up to my mid kind of teens, uh, we were in very much an apartheid South Africa uh, where there was white supremacy, really. Um, and I kind of wonder sometimes how many of the older black South Africans would they even under apartheid, you know, whether it was the better South Africa, um, because, you know, the South Africa that there is now with the levels of corruption are just horrendous. You know, I kind of wonder whether it was a better South Africa than, than it is now. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult discussion, so I'll try not to get into the politics of it. No, but it's my, my parents, um, in their foresight, you know, they used to do quite a lot of fundraising for the townships, for black communities, for black community projects. And as a result, uh, I was educated um, at a school called Woodmead, <clears throat> which at the time was way out. It was really way out there. It was the only multiracial school, fully multiracial school in South Africa. No so my, my age group, uh, or from the age of uh, 12 to... 17 so my high school years were all at Woodmead <clears throat> and Woodmead was um, a project school uh, completely multiracial all my friends at school were blacks and Indians 
Um, uh, I did have some white friends, but the majority of my friends were blacks and Indians. And um, yeah, it, it was fantastic. It, it was a brilliant thing. But because it was a project school, you know, you were you were taught, it kind of went along the Montessori lines of, of the education. Um, and so everything was project-based. So you really had to research everything. You had to work out how to solve the problems. You had to come up with ideas. And uh, that education really has stood me in good stead for the rest of my life. And, you know, one of the challenges that I do have is that I, I am dyslexic. I, I find writing a struggle at the best of times um, and getting thoughts onto paper has always been a challenge. But with regard to the creativity side of dyslexia, uh, I now no longer see dyslexia as a challenge, oh, sorry, as a disability. In actual fact, I think it's probably the, the greatest asset that I, uh, as I have. And I wish that people with dyslexia were, were more celebrated uh, because the brain works in a different way. And I, I feel incredibly fortunate to be dyslexic. And that's very interesting because you definitely do think outside the box, don't you? And, you, and then... <laughs> I would like to think so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I would agree with that. You're all over the show. It's like a firework going off. Um, so I always remember you telling me about, you know, you used to go out, camp out, and always be out playing in the bush and stuff. And um, and one thing which sort of came back late to you later in life, but one thing you used to do is you, you told me about digging out termite mounds and making trying to make little ovens out of them. Yeah, my, my dad gave me a book when I was really young, and I can't remember what the name of it was. And you won't believe it, but when I did go back to South Africa to say goodbye to him, I went through his bookshelf to actually try and find the book that I had, which was my inspiration. And it was something like Boys Own or Boys Outdoor Camping or whatever. And right. it had all of these ways that you could make fire and how you could make traps and uh, how you could uh, survive in the wild. And it had things like building ovens in termite mounds. And the one thing we did have in our garden was termite mounds. So, you know, uh, I used to set up my bush camp at the back bottom of the garden. It was always in the same place. It's termite mound next to it. And we hollowed out the space to um, make, make an oven and a cooking space. And even when I went and did my national service, when we were on maneuvers um, uh, in training we had to do our bivvies and dig out a bivy and i remember we were there for like was it two weeks on that maneuver in officers training and even in my bivy i dug out uh, a little outdoor camping stove kind of area in the bivy <laughs> it was two bivies joined together and it had this lounge area with little, little space that had space for for cooking if we wanted to cook it's just that passion of mine for cooking in the outdoors just just came through um and yeah you know uh, termite mounds is where i started uh i won't say that that experience rekindled itself until much later on in life you know uh and so much happened between that childhood there was all the national service and interestingly i think national service should be compulsory for everybody i think that if we all did national service we'd learn so much more about ourselves um as people uh and we'd learn what what our strengths are to a much greater extent than you can in any other environment. And I know that there are people who are conscientious objectors and all the rest of it, but still the whole process of going through national service and, and 
giving back to your community in that sense. You know, you don't have to fight. There's so many other things that can be done, which yeah. is not f- fighting related. Uh, I certainly think it would sort out community to a huge amount if they brought back national service. Mm, anyway. That's a, a good point. I mean, um, were you a hunter? Were you a fisherman? Did you catch stuff back then when I was a kid? I, I, I remember, you know, right from a young age in, 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 in Africa, you, you, you learn to shoot. It's just one of the things you do. And I remember, you know, I remember the first pellet gun my folks gave me was this thing that would hardly pop a berry out the end. <laughs> uh, and then I went on to get a BSA rifle, uh, also at a very young age, taught to shoot. Uh, and then, yes, you, you know, you kind of go on the hunting spree. It's it's what you do as a as a kid. Yeah. But my father always said that uh, it, it was a lesson he taught me very young. He said, uh, "If you shoot it, you've got to eat it, right?" right. Yeah. Um, and and that was it. You you couldn't shoot for fun. You couldn't just go outside and shoot birds. If you wanted to shoot birds, that's fine. But then you had to pluck them and eat them. Yeah. And so uh, the the spree of shooting birds didn't last very long, right? <laughs> uh, he did, however, have one exception to the rule, and that was uh, because we lived on a small holding in our farm. Uh, there are always rats associated with small holdings uh, and farms. Yeah. I could shoot rats. Anytime I wanted. There, there was never an issue with shooting rats. But if I wanted to shoot birds, I had to eat them. So, yeah, when I was a kid, you know, my friends used to come over to the farm and uh, we used to go ratting it at night. Um, and, you know, that's kind of what you did on a farm. Milk the cows, do the milk round and shoot rats at night. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah, so I did. But I have to say that, that, that that's, I, I never got the bloodlust. And right. uh, when I went... When I did my national service, um, I, I kind of got through national service, uh, did basic training, did uh, leadership training, and then on to officers training. Uh, I was 17, a lieutenant in the South African Defense Force, and I was responsible for communications. And I got myself assigned. Uh, I had to fight for it. I got myself assigned as signal officer for the Kruger National Park. And um, wow. <laughs> I remember I was nearly court-martialed, uh, one for assigning myself the post as signals officer in the Kruger National Park. Uh, my um, commanding officer at the military base that I had been sent to uh, after completing officer's training uh, wasn't happy with the choices that I made in deciding that his base wasn't suitable for me and that really I would be much better served in the Kruger National Park. So I phoned, <laughs> up the, I phoned up the commanding officer of the Kruger National Park. I told him that I was a signals officer. I told him that I'd spent many years as a child in the Kruger National Park and uh, as a result knew the area intimately. And uh, the position that I held as a signals officer uh, oh, sorry, as a signals officer in the base that I was at really wasn't becoming of a signals officer because I was merely an accountant. And if this South African Defence Force wanted to waste money on uh, training signals officers, then surely um, I should be put in a position where I could put my training to good use. He couldn't agree more. He then phoned up the commanding officer of the base that I was at um, and said, I understand that you have a signals officer there who could really should be with me. Um, so my commanding officer at the time took mighty humbridge to that, called me in and told me he was going to send me to the Caprivi Strip, which was a really bad military area where there was 
huge uh, unrest uh, and he was going to send me to one reconnaissance unit so I could sleep in the oh. bush all the time doing <laughs> reconnaissance in highly volatile areas. Oh. And I said, well, yeah, he could do that, but that would also be a mistake. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, things didn't go too well with that commanding officer. Um, uh, but I do remember that like two weeks later. No, what did he say? He said to me, if I could finish the stock take, uh, within a month rather than the three months that had been allocated, then he would release me from my duties and I could go to the Kruger National Park. Really? A month later, I reported for duty at the Kruger National Park. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's amazing what, that, what a target can do for you, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, I reported to my base in the Kruger National Park with all my photographic equipment. And that actually led to uh, me being court-martialed or almost court-martialed <laughs> for disobeying security protocol. Oh uh, but yeah, that's, that, that's another story. I, <laughs> I, 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 re I remember seeing a friend of mine told me that the MPs were coming to collect me because I hadn't taken my camera equipment back home, having been ordered to do so. Oh. And I remember driving out the gate of the Kruger National Park and seeing the MPs going in the other direction to arrest me um but by then by then i was already on my way home taking my photographic equipment with me and uh, uh of course they didn't have any cause then for arrest so, so i was released i was released uh, what are you child. like i know the, the, the crazy the crazy thing is is that the guy that had um had sent out for my arrest was a, an intelligence officer and later we became very very good friends um, and the commanding officer of the Kruger National Park, at the end of my service, I got, I, I got malaria. I was uh, sent to one military hospital for two months to get over malaria and uh, uh, Bilhazia at the time. And uh, on the con uh, completion of my tour of duty, uh, I was promoted with full rank and pay to full lieutenant. And at the time, I was the youngest lieutenant in the South Africa, full lieutenant with pay in the South African Defense Force. Um, I was also then reassigned to that base in Kruger National Park for my um, commando duties. Uh, and um, yeah, I was the only person who was assigned duty out of their jurisdiction. So, yeah, I had a fab time in the Kruger National Park. And, and <laughs> when you talk about um, National Park, uh, Kruger and, and spending time in the outdoors in Africa and stuff, that's yeah. a hell of a lot different out there than it is over here. You're talking about things that can eat you. I mean, did you come to terms with and learn to be comfortable around and was taught about wild animals and how to approach them and, and all of that stuff? Did that all come as part of the training? No, <laughs> no, that, that, that came from being friends with the local rangers. You know, um, uh, I have a knife on my desk, which was made for me uh, by a local ranger. He went on to become a top knife maker in South Africa, and it was his first commissioned knife. And my folks got it commissioned for me, uh, and it sits on my desk as a, a handy reminder. The sheath for that knife is made from lion skin. Wow. Um, but it's, it's in talking to the rangers that you kind of learn the skills. But our job in the Kruger National Park at the time, it was one of the biggest operational areas uh, in South Africa, we used to, um, our job was to catch refugees crossing uh, from Namibia, which was right. uh, war-torn at the time. 
um, catch the refugees and, and, and send them back. But unfortunately, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the communist at the time, the communist forces and all the rest of it also saw that as a great route into South Africa yeah. because it was a cross wilderness. They could get straight into, um, into the townships across there. So while we were, catching these refugees there was always the the element of uh insurgency there as well so it was one of the biggest operations uh operational areas in south africa at the time and yet it uh, it was all under the radar you know um so Amazing. we weren't allowed to be seen we weren't allowed to be seen by the public we had to sweep all the roads for mines uh before sunrise um, uh, and then do most of our operations and maneuvers <clears throat> in the dark uh, after all the tourists were tucked up nice and tight in bed. So it, 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 was, it, it, it was a challenging time, you know. Uh, and, and did you, um, did you ever come across any hairy situations with elephants and things like that? <laughs> far too many <laughs> far too many um uh, yeah i've been charged by elephants more times than i care to remember really um uh and yeah i uh, uh i've always been scared of elephants i don't know why i, I think it's something to do with their size yeah it's quite and sensible the to be honest. form of a of uh, the puny form of a human against an elephant mm, uh, no yeah. i have a healthy respect for, for elephants but uh, you know, there were plenty of times that I was camped out in the bush. Uh, one of the freedoms that I had as the signals officer is that I had a Unimog and I could literally go wherever I wanted. Right. Because all I had to say was that it was in the, in the benefit of communications for the forces, you know. <laughs> so if I wanted to go camp out on the top of a hill overnight, I just took my Unimog and I went and camped out on the top of a hill and checked what the signals were like. So I had incredible freedoms. Um, uh, yeah, and, and I have to say that that year that I spent as signals officer in the Kruger National Park, one of the toughest years I've ever had of my life, no doubt about that, but the most rewarding experience I could ever have. And it kind of astounds me that there's so many people that when I was a kid, you know, they wanted to go to national service and just say it was a complete waste of time. You know, I believe you get out of everything that you put into it. Mm -hmm. And if you go in with a positive attitude and find what you can learn from the experience, you can come out of it a better person. And I certainly found that from my national service experience. So what came next? Mm. Uh, my, my grandfather wanted to uh, kind of uh, introduce us to Europe. We hadn't been to Europe before right. uh, and he had just sold his farm. So with the money, he took the whole family on a skiing holiday. Ah. And uh, we, went, we went skiing uh, in Austria. And I think everybody has a, I think everybody has an affinity to a sport of some sort, right? I think there's got to be some sport that everybody's good at. Uh, and for me, it was skiing. I just, I mean, I water skied as a kid, but snow skiing is completely different to that. And you just picked it up so, straight away, um, did you? Uh, no, I learned on a dry slope in Johannesburg. Okay. It was 150 meters long and 15 meters wide. And, and I learned on that dry slope. You have dry slopes like that are all over the UK. Uh, and then we went on the skiing holiday with my grandfather uh, when I was young. But when I finished the national service, well, when I finished my matriculation um, as, a, as a gift, my parents um, sent me to uh, Europe 
skiing. I mean, I'd been, at that time, I'd been on the junior ski team of South Africa and all the rest of it. Oh, wow. uh, skiing was my sport. I tried to do skiing in the South African army as my recognized sport, but they wouldn't recognize skiing as a, <laughs> as a, sport, as a sport in South Africa. So despite the fact that I had skied on the, the South African ski team and I had an international race number and all the rest of it, they just didn't recognize skiing. And it didn't matter what I did, they didn't recognize it. But anyway, uh, just before I went into the army, I had gone to Kitzbühel in Austria yep. uh, on holiday with some friends <clears throat> uh, just before I went into the army. Um, and uh, while I was there, one of the instructors, uh, you know, said to me, said, you know, you shouldn't be in ski school. You should be giving ski school. So um, he kind of put me at the back of the class and mm. said, if ever I wanted to come back to Kitzbühel and I was looking for a job as a ski instructor to reach out. So when I finished my national service, uh, when I turned 21, I applied to the Red Devil Ski School in Kitzbühel as an instructor. And I was told to report uh, for the training session. Uh, I think it was about the 14th of December or something like that. So I turned up on the 14th of December. December. I spoke very little German. They spoke very little English in reality. And uh, I proceeded to do the, uh, the, the ski school training right. uh, out of the, I don't know how many hundreds of people they kind of put through training. I, I finally got through by the skin of my teeth. Uh, <laughs> that had its altercations with the head of the ski school as well. Funny, um, but I, 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 yeah, I kind of went on and I became a ski instructor uh, at the Red Devil Ski School. And I remember my father was flying back to Europe. It was the last time he came to Europe and he was flying South African Airways. And he picked up the magazine uh, uh, Skyways and he started reading this article about uh, a ski instructor in Kitzbühel. And it was <laughs> kind of close to the end. He realized that he was reading about his son. So he kind of went around gathering all these magazines from people. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, so I became a ski instructor and I was a ski instructor and I finished up um, being a director of one of the ski schools in Kitzbühel uh, called the Hunnicombe Ski School. And I had a fantastic eight years there um, uh, helping to run that ski school. And so I spent my winters in Austria skiing. Uh, and while I was skiing, I learned my craft as an entertainer uh, and a magician. No. Uh, well, I used did to you do the flight of it? <laughs> yeah, no, just because I found out that you could get better tips if you entertained your students. And of course, the girls loved it. Of course, the girls loved it. So <laughs> I used to do Friday night cabaret at the ski school. And every lunchtime, uh, oh man, I had so many scams running. Well, not scams, so many business opportunities <laughs> running. So uh, I used to get my students on the first morning, set them up, sit down at the first lunch break, and then plan their week activities for them. I used to then sell them a week of activities for their, them and their friends for every single evening of the week uh, before the reps had a chance to <laughs> sell them the activities on the evening so by the time they got to the reps in the evening they'd already booked up with my activities and uh yeah that went on great and i remember the director of the ski school uh i think it was about the third year saying that at one of the meetings that um that all ski instructors should take a, a leaf out of my book and they should do more for their students like I did and really entertain them and give them a good time because that way they would always come back. The following year, when the ski schools all split up, um, uh, 
a couple of the rep companies, a couple of the reps went to the ski school and said, you have to stop him selling the activities. Uh, and if you don't stop him selling the activities, then we're going to go to another ski school. Ah. So the one year uh, it was really good. The next year it was like I was in Dogsville because I was providing such a, a fantastic service that the, uh, that the tour operators were losing out. So, so <laughs> that, that, that year was particularly difficult for me. <laughs> Shame. Anyway, I, I, I did meet my wife. Uh, she was one of my students. And, uh, you know, we've been together 25, 26 years now. We've been married for 20. And she was one of my students. So uh, some, some good <laughs> things. put an end to your shenanigans. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 Funny. So that, 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 that was the, the kind of the start to the entertainment when I stopped skiing, I did go back to South Africa. Uh, I was uh, headhunted by a South African firm to run a ski company in South Africa, selling ski holidays uh, to South Africans. I did that for a year, but it really wasn't my thing. Uh, that didn't work out. So I came back to the UK and, um, you know, took the entertainment on full board and uh, became uh, an entertainer in the UK. So I was a street performer, busker, uh, balloon sculptor, fire eater, and uh, kind of went on from there to corporate hospitality, trade show magic, and then uh, parlor magic for uh, royalty and sub-royalty. So the, really? the, the magic was, 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 was a fun period of my life. And what brought that to a close? Uh, my wife bought me, a, well, first of all, entertainment, while it's, I mean, the buzz you get after a gig, and I still got so many stories to tell about magic and the things that we did. Um, but entertaining is one of those crazy things. One minute you're in and the next minute you're out, you know, yeah, yeah. and, you know, you, you kind of do a circuit and then everybody wants you in the circuit and you have to keep reinventing yourself. And, mm. uh, it, 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 I found that I was working weekends, I was working um, bank holidays, uh, and it, it, it was difficult. And then my wife bought me a chimney for my birthday, ah. uh, uh, one of the little Mexican garden heaters. Um, and I put this on my patio, lit a fire in it, and we sat around the glow and and I thought to myself, this is great. This is life. Yeah. Uh, and the following morning, the thing had fallen apart. And I thought <laughs> to myself, hang on a second. <laughs> Reading back through the instructions of use, it said, don't make a big fire. Well, what's the point of having a chimney that you go and make a big fire? In, <laughs> you know? Uh, and you exploded uh, it on the first night. <laughs> oh, man, it, it lasted two fires. That was it. <laughs> and and I thought, it. you know, that's a that's a great idea. It's a great idea, but if only it could be made better. So, you know, being the kind of person I am, that's exactly what I did. I worked out a way to make them. I worked out a way to make them. Uh, I then uh, patented that process. Uh, I showed a couple of my friends a burner that I'd made. They all wanted one. Um, and then I made them their burners. And I was just I mentioned in the post the other day, I've got to find the picture because my original factory was a triangular space of literally patio, probably no more than one and a half meters by two meters where I used to make these chimneys right. uh, next to my factory. And then when I'd finished them all, they said, um, you know, well, 
we don't want to take delivery of them until you've exhibited them. So uh, I kind of thought about that. So where I was going to exhibit them. And I'd been an entertainer, Stilt Walker, an entertainer at the Three Counties show for the previous seven years. Mm. So I kind of phoned up Three Counties Showground and I said, look, you know, um, I'm not going to be able to entertain for you this year, but I'd like you to, 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 to let me have a pitch so I can promote my products. And they said, well, you don't just get pitches at Three Counties Showground, you know. The Three Counties Showground is the most, one of the most celebrated events in the UK. You know that. You've been <laughs> entertaining here for seven years. Yes. And I said, well, why do you think I want to use this as my, my launch pad? And eventually, after a whole lot of haggling and all the rest of it, I managed to get a pitch right outside the flower marquee. Um, and if you're in the business, you'll know that right outside the flower marquee is prime position. And uh, okay. I set up my little stall. We sold 27 chimneys at that function. And I realized that my little space on the patio wasn't going to be big enough. And so uh, I went and found a, a farm. I had been doing some curtains and some lambricans. I used to do some sewing curtains and lambricans for a friend uh, who was an interior designer. And I'd done all the curtains and lambricans in this really posh house. And I remember they had had some, uh, they had some outbuildings out the back, some farm buildings. So I knocked on his door and <laughs> said to him, I said, wonder if you could help me out. I said, uh, I launched a product at Three Counties Show over the weekend. And um, uh, it sold pretty well. Problem is, I don't have any premises. Is there any chance I could rent your barn off you? And so my first factory was this barn uh, in the <laughs> middle of nowhere. Uh, I got water from a hose pipe. Uh, I was allowed to have uh, one delivery a week. And I was allowed to have one collection a week or one collection slot a week. And three months later, I realized that... Uh, while he had given me the start, the product has started to sell. Everybody was talking about the chimneys that I'm like. I had one guy uh, who was just fanatical about the products, and he sold one of my burners to every single one of his mates. So <laughs> I had all these orders streaming in. And um, uh, I then went and found the next premises, which is actually the premises you came to visit me at. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was there, I was at that, I was on that farm for 20 years. Um, until I was evicted because they wanted to turn it into uh, some houses. Mm. So, yeah, you know, even now I'm, I'm on an, an, another farm. I just much prefer a farm environment than I do uh, an, an industrial state environment. So, yep, we, we, the, the company is, is run from a farm in, uh, in, in Worcestershire, not far from Worcester town centre itself. Yeah. And so let's, that's uh, a good, uh, a good leading. Let's talk about Bushman ovens. Now, when, when we talk about, um, wood fired ovens, outdoor ovens, people, people often just look at look at them and say, there's a pizza oven, right? Um, <clears throat> and we're talking about sort of domed ovens, um, the best of which come, you know, with lots of, uh, with lots of insulation in there. So you, you fire up your, your fire with dry logs and really get it hot. And then that heat dissipates into the into the surround of the oven, and you can cook on that from really, really, you know, blazing hot four five hundred degrees Celsius um, for the next twenty four hours, all the way down to drying fruit and stuff. So, how did you after the after the um, chimneys? You suddenly thought there's something going on here: the outdoors, the wood, the fire, the sitting around a campfire type feeling, and then you moved on to ovens. Uh, yeah, the, the, the ovens came quite quickly after the, the chineers. It was actually the following year. 
uh, somebody approached me and asked me if I could make them a Roman oven. Uh, and I said, you know, what the hell was a Roman oven? Yeah. So we want you to make an oven that we can bake bread in. And I, I kind of had a look around and, uh, there was nobody else doing Roman ovens in the UK. So uh, I kind of hooked up with another guy and he, he had been trying to market them for a while uh, without much success. Uh, and he was using the wrong materials anyway. So, you know, his, his knowledge of the shape of the oven was valuable, but uh, the, the materials he, he was using was, were completely wrong. So we, we hooked up for a short period of time together uh, and I started making roman ovens i then started marketing them as roman ovens and yeah. i took them to every single show that there was uh Huntington court tatton park bbc gardeners world live uh i was on the road literally four months in the year just solidly trying to sell products and one of them was the roman oven which people just couldn't understand they didn't understand what a roman oven was no. uh and this this was just at the dawn of um, the internet. So I remember uh, my neighbor had told me about what the internet was and all the rest of it. And uh, he had done a little family website. And um, uh, I said, you know, is there any chance that you could build me a website? And so we kind of put the website together with his help. He went on to build a very, very successful web company based on that. So that was a good start for him as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, I remember, you know, we were doing search and keyword search. So I'm going back uh, doing AdWords even before it was called AdWords. It was still called Overture. That's how far back it goes, you know. <laughs> and I was one of the first people on that kind of platform selling products. And I always knew that marketing was the key. Um, and Roman ovens weren't working and, and we started analyzing that and it took me a long time to realize that what I needed to do was call them pizza ovens and if I called it a pizza right. oven then uh, things might change so the Roman the name Roman oven was dropped pizza oven was listed and we started getting sales uh, under the pizza oven brand so you know bushman wood fired ovens then came on later uh because the chimneys and the african pot houses and the architectural pots they were all products that were well known they were selling well um and now it's the the wood fired ovens which which are the 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 thing that i'm best known for yeah um, and let's uh, bushman, talk about them bushman, I mean, sorry jay like anything um you get what you pay for and there's lots of stuff out there that you think, well, that's, you know, still quite a few hundred pounds, but hey, it looks great and that'll do the job. And a bit of research and a bit of finding out, you, uh, like with anything, you discover that there's, um, there's a lot of stuff out there that, that might look great, but doesn't necessarily do the job. Um, and it depends what you want to do with your oven, right? If you just want to fire it up and cook a few pizzas for a couple of hours, then that's one thing. Um, which sounds, by the way, really easy, and actually, it really isn't. I mean, Jay's probably cooked more pizzas than any man alive, but um, I'm only just coming to terms with pizzas because you, you know, if, if you make your own dough and then stretch your own dough and then do your own toppings and stuff, it ain't no quick. You know, I'll have a pint with the lads and bung a pizza in. It's a whole evening of working your back wheel out. Um, but uh, aside from that, yeah, if you then want to go on to bake bread and to, um, you know, roast meat and put overnight stews on and cook, 
beans and, and anything else you can possibly think of in the oven, then you need that residual heat. And that's where the expense comes in, right? I, I guess, yes, yes. I, I think, however, the biggest injustice I ever did my product is to call them pizza ovens. Yeah. Right. Um, we coined them pizza ovens simply because that's what everybody searches for on the internet. The, the true correct definition from it is either a wood-fired oven or a wood-burning oven. Yeah. Now, when you look at that and you actually then go and research wood-fired ovens, you'll find that they go all the way back to Roman times, which is why they were called Roman ovens when I launched them. Yeah. Um, uh, so the biggest injustice we have is to call a wood-fired oven a pizza oven because there is just so much more you can do with it. Uh, once you have a wood-fired oven and you have a good wood-fired oven in, 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 in your possession, there is literally nothing that you can't cook in it. Nothing. <laughs> you, you, you know, all right, deep frying becomes a challenge. Um, but but <laughs> everything else, it, does, it doesn't matter if you want to fry, grill, bake, roast, uh, steam, it, it can all be done Smoke, in a wood-fired yeah, oven. Yeah, yeah. Smoke, I mean, uh, hot smoking and cold smoking wood-fired oven, it, it does it all. Um, uh, and yes, you know, I, I, I'm not going to knock the competitors because when I first started making wood-fired ovens in the UK, I was the only person making them. And, you know, I traipsed up and down the country trying to sell them. And it was one person's mission to try and get the word across what these were. And I remember when I finally got to go to Chelsea, you know, which, you know, it is a huge honor to be able to exhibit at Chelsea. The list is huge and the requirements are massive, right? But eventually when I got to be able to go and exhibit at Chelsea, I was told that I could bring all of my products except the wood-fired oven. No. All right? Uh, in the view of the powers that may be at the RHS, uh, I was told that a wood-fired oven would never, ever have a space in an English garden. Really? So I could bring, I could bring all of the other products, but the product which was leading the time I, I couldn't bring the product that was innovative i wasn't allowed to bring i wasn't allowed to exhibit the following year um jamie oliver launched his uh at home with jamie oliver series no. uh, and that year at chelsea the biggest new innovation in outdoor entertainment and everything else wood-fired ovens by jamie oliver oh right? you're kidding me uh and uh, no that, that true story uh, I never exhibited another show after that ever again. I never did another RHS show because realistically I'd been exhibiting my products at their shows for the previous 10 years. And when I went back to them and, and kind of questioned them, they said, well, in truth, Jay, you're no Jamie Oliver, are you? You know, I <laughs> mean, if, 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 <laughs> if Jamie Oliver says it's the next big thing, uh, people are going to listen to him. If you oh, say it's the next man. best thing, well, realistic, you know, who the hell are you? And that, that hurt. That, that hurts a while. But in actual yeah. fact, uh, I can't thank him enough. Um, and I can't thank the other people that have helped to drive this, this phenomenon, which is outdoor cooking and outdoor entertaining space, yes. the way yes. it's been driven. Um, because without all the people who are in, in importing ovens from abroad who are importing good stuff and bad stuff, there wouldn't be the drive. So before, you know, I was a, 
a, a small fish in, sorry, a big fish in a small pond, you know, with very few clients. Um, nowadays, I'm a small fish in a very big pond. And I would rather be a small fish in a very big pond um, and be able to sell products to the clients that, um, that want my product and specifically my product. So when you buy a Bushman wood-fired oven, you are buying the best. You are buying the, the top oven in the UK. You are buying something that has been DEFRA approved, that goes through all the tests and the requirements that are, are required of this uh, to meet the UK standards. I mean, health. Just this year, I've just looked at my testing bill, and this year it looks like we're going to be spending between thirty-five and forty thousand pounds just on compliance testing. I can wow. tell you that there are very, very few companies that are in this marketplace that are spending that kind of money on compliance testing. Okay. So when you so, we talk about that sort of thing, Jay, you're talking about things like you know compliance about how it's built. But I know that uh, you know a big worry for uh, some people is. Most of them are coming in on the DEFRA approvals, you know, yeah. the, the, the permissions that you have. So unfortunately, when you go onto the internet and you search for wood-fired oven and you look for a, uh, a product to buy, you will find anything from 250 pounds all the way up to Bushman wood-fired ovens starting at three and a half. Right. So, you know, three and a half thousand pounds is where you look to start at with a Bushman wood fired oven. Yeah. Yet you can go and buy a pizza oven on the Internet for uh, as little as 250 quid. I saw yeah. one at Aldi the other day for 80 quid. Right. No the, the difference comes in what you do with the oven. So when you're looking at a gadget, you'll find that it is basically of steel construction uh, and has zero thermal mass. Um, if it has zero, zero thermal mass, then you have zero heat retention. In actual yeah. fact, all you're buying then is a grill oven. You're buying a salamander, right? You're buying something that, that, that grills fantastically well and can achieve the heats that you needed to cook pizzas very efficiently. But you have to have that fire going all the time. You have no retained heat, okay? When you start looking at proper wood-fired ovens, they all have thermal mass. Now, the problem is that you could go and build an oven out of carbon clay very cheaply. Unfortunately, carbon clay was not, never designed for the UK climate. And no. the ambient moisture in our air just decays the reinforcing me mechanisms, which is the hay and the straw. So if you don't use that oven on a regular basis, you're going to light it up in the spring, invite all your friends around, stick in a leg of lamb and then you're going to be embarrassed when you see the thing collapse on top of your <laughs> leg of lamb. Uh, now, I'm not knocking cob ovens, you know. Cob ovens are absolutely fantastic things if you live in North Africa, right, where it never rains and the moisture in the air is very low. Yeah. Uh, you will notice on that same thing, we've got many, many cob houses in the UK. You know, uh, a lot of the heritage houses are, are wattle and daub and cob. Yes. But you'll also know if somebody doesn't live in that house, how quickly they decay. It needs constant warmth. And a wood-fired oven made out of cob is exactly the same. Oh, right. okay. So, so that was designed for use every there, day. Yeah, you, you, you have to be using it at least once a week to keep it dry. Otherwise, it's going to decay on you. Then the step up from there is that, oh, we'll, we'll build a Pompeii oven. A Pompeii oven is a great oven. Now, this is an oven built out of refractory bricks literally bomb proof so you go and buy um uh, uh fire bricks and you build the whole oven out of fire bricks 
The problem with that for domestic use is one, if you build it, you're building something that's going to be illegal uh, and you can't use it. Uh, and if your neighbors complain about it, you're going to be subjected to fines because it's not being put through any kind of testing, all right? The other problem is that Pompeii ovens have such huge thermal mass that you need a rainforest to get them going, (laughs) right? So, you know, you're talking about three, four inches of refractory. You're going to have to stick so much wood through that oven to heat it up. And then, yeah, admittedly, you'll be able to cook on it for like three or four days. But that kind of destroys the whole point of having a wood-fired oven in your garden. The idea of having a real wood-fired oven in your garden. And this was the, the premise that I set out right from the start. Being South African, we love barbecue. Uh, and I thought to myself, when I designed the Bushman range of wood-fired ovens right from day one, I said, how long does it take to get a barbecue up to temperature? 45 minutes, right? Yeah. About 45 minutes. So if you got home and you said, we're going to barbecue outside, you'd stick the charcoal on the fire, you set fire to it, you go and prep the ingredients, you're going to have a shower, you come back down, you grab a beer, fire's ready, start cooking. So when I designed the wood-fired ovens right from day one, I set the thickness of the refractory, the clay, the heat envelope, to come to temperature in about 45 minutes, okay? Uh, And that was always the premise, and that's always been the same premise. So with a Bushman wood-fired oven, you can get into your garden, you can light it up when you get home, you can look out and say, ah, fantastic weather this afternoon. You can phone the wife up and say, hi, should we cook in the oven tonight? Should we have pizza? Should we have whatever? Uh, you can light the fire up when you get home, go and have a shower, prep your dough, and by the time that's all sorted, you go outside and cook. Um, yeah, That's the thing. But with a good wood-fired oven, something with good thermal mass, you know, uh, if we take the Santorini, for example, uh, that oven, which is our next generation oven, which we launched last year, on one and a half, sorry, two and a half kilos of wood, it'll get that oven up to 150 degrees. No problem at all. And it'll maintain that temperature for six hours. Really? So if you got home, you lit a fire uh, on one, uh, two and a half kilos of wood, 45 minutes later, the fire would have burnt out. You stick your chicken in there. Uh, you stick a leg of lamb. You stick a you go and do your gardening, all the rest, come back, and it's cooked and it's done. Happy days, you know? So any of the hot smoking can be done in that oven on one fire. You can cook a... Uh, Chicken, you can do a spatchcock chicken, no problem at all. A belly pork cooked in that oven with a smoking chips on the side is just to die for. But you don't have to do anything. You just get the oven hot, stick the belly pork in, close the oven door, forget about it, come back four hours later, you got this delectable delight. Well, that's a so, good point. Yes, I mean, one of the is, things you, um, I've discovered is cooking. I mean, pork, for instance, I never used to eat much pork because I don't, it's very, very rare you find pork that's been cooked well. But if you, I've discovered in the oven, um, all I do is, is just fire it up and then I cover up the, cover up the, um, the skin, as it were, and, and, and you know, really sort of almost slow cook it for some time. And then you just put a few uh, thin sticks in and fire it up to get the crackling going. And it's absolutely it's unbelievable. I, I, I'm, I'm salivating. I'm salivating because, <laughs> yeah, that, you know, it, it, there's two dishes which are my go-to dishes. Uh, 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 belly pork and, um, and spatchcock chicken, you know. Uh, mm. Literally, you can't go wrong with those two. Then, of course, smoked ribs. 
Um, I mean, smoked ribs to do them well, it's it's a long involved process. But um, and you just get those prepped in advance and you serve them to your guests. I'm salivating just talking about this. Yeah, it's getting me going. Uh, I'm thinking about doing pulled pork. Is that that one you'd recommend? Pulled pork in the fire. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I'm not a, a huge fan of pulled pork. Right. No, me Personally, I'm not a huge fan of it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like seeing what I'm cutting into and, and enjoying that. And I kind of see shredded pulled pork as, uh, dare I say it, peasant food. <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah. It, it, it great, great for serving the masses, but doesn't yeah. really impress. <laughs> um, uh, you know, this weekend, I'm really hoping to do a Wagyu tomahawk on the wood-fired oh, oven. Uh, now, when you cook that, you have the high heat in that oven. You stick that, that beef in, it just caramelizes the surface. You get the mallard reaction happening on the, on the sugars. Uh, you cut into that. It's perfectly rare inside. It's perfectly crusted on the outside. Uh, do that on a Tuscan grill and, you know, just heavenly and then you know some flatbreads on the side with a guacamole or uh, just it, 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 it put it this way when you get a real wood fired oven in your garden one of the things i say to people when they're planning on getting an oven in their garden say right so this is the oven going to be standalone or you're going to be doing it as part of a kitchen and they said, well, you know, we're kind of doing it as standalone at the moment and, you know, we'll go out and use it a bit of time. And I always said to them, I said, all right, so here's the thing. If, if you're going to be spending the kind of money you're going to be spending on to buy a Bushman wood-fired oven, then right from the start, plan that in the future you're going to be putting a roof over it, right? <laughs> yeah, because, I need to talk to you about that, Jay. <laughs> yeah, because here's one of the things is once you start cooking in the oven, I know that the doghouse, which is my shed in my garden, my cooking space, is the place that I go. You know, if I want to get out of the house, if I want to go and lose myself, I go into the doghouse and I cook food. I do the things that I love doing. And it's my space, you know. Um, It's my outdoor kitchen. And I can go in there and it doesn't matter if it's hammering down with rain outside. It doesn't matter. It, It can be bucketing it can be snowing it doesn't bother me i go into my little space the oven is warm there's a lovely glow in there i've got an extra heat lamp over the top i've got four chairs across the front of the bar where people can sit uh and i can serve them food you know uh and 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 it then becomes a whole entertaining experience you know, I need to send you some pictures, Jay, because I think it's time to get a roof on mine. But you see what I mean? Now, now, I totally agree with you. Okay, so here's one of the, the things that, that I need to point out right from this, and this is where there's so much mis, misinterpretation. You can get an oven in your garden, right? And as long as it's portable, it falls under the same class as a barbecue, right? means anybody can have a barbecue in their, in their garden. There's no issues. It's a portable device. But when an oven weighs three to 400 kilos, it doesn't become portable anymore. It becomes a fixed structure. And as soon as you have a fixed structure with four walls uh, or three walls or more and a roof, then the appliance has to be DEFRA approved. All right. Okay. Otherwise, you can't use it in your garden. Otherwise, you're subject to yourself. So the oven that you got, DEFRA approved, right? At the moment, it doesn't have a roof over it. If it was any other oven and you now 
decided to put a roof on, you leave yourself open to prosecution really? by your local council and your neighbors then have an opportunity to complain about it. Yeah. Right? Now, here's the thing. A good wood-fired oven, an oven that's been through all the tests, right, produces minimal smoke. So if you're putting a DEFRA-approved oven into your garden, then the neighbors really don't have anything to complain about because the oven produces less smoke than you would if you're having a barbecue. But invariably, the yeah. comments we get back come from a position of jealousy more than anything else. When you go and build yourself a fantastic outdoor kitchen in your garden and the neighbors can see it from theirs and they see a bit of whiff of smoke coming out the top, they aren't complaining about the whiff of smoke. That's just the statement point. They complain <laughs> because they're jealous. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I have to yeah. say from my Please. experience, the amount of smoke is, is, is next to nothing. It's only for the first 10, 15 uh, yeah. generally. Um, and and even, even that I can teach you to eliminate, you know. Even that I can teach you to eliminate. Right. What was the thing um, you were telling me about so, the, um, the, uh, the meat sensor? That that's the thermometer? Really. Oh, oh, the meat sensors. Okay. So... <sighs> I'm not a professional chef, right? And um, there, is a, uh, there is a gadget. So I've got, and I have to shoot the video on this. Uh, I've been promising to do it for Yonks. Over the last 10 years, really, when thermometers started becoming of age, and, you know, when we started looking at a Heston style of cooking, yeah. where you can get perfect results every time, um, it all comes down to temperature. So if you use a water bath, if you use a uh, sous vide, if you want to cook a steak medium rare and hit it medium rare every single time, if you want to cook a steak rare and hit it every single time, the only way to do that is with a thermometer. Yeah. Okay. Now, I've got photographs of me cooking various dishes in a wood-fired oven. Uh, I've got a photograph of me doing salt-baked lamb, uh, wow. prawns, uh, uh, pig roast, and uh, <laughs> what else did I do on that day? Something that, uh, a, a lamb roast, right? Now, all of those require different temperatures, okay? And the pig has different temperatures at different points in it. You know, right. the, yeah, the cheek yeah. is going to cook at a different time to the thigh and the leg is going to cook at a different time to the ribs. And so you kind of need to know where your temperatures are. So in the past, I've used multiple thermometers, right? I even had a range of thermometers that we made ourselves and those are the green wires sticking out of the oven. So you could stick a probe into all the things that you wanted. You could record the temperature accurately and then you could pull out the food perfectly. Done every time, perfectly. That's what people love. Nothing burnt when you come to Jay. Always perfect, okay? <laughs> and I got that tip from Heston. I have to give Heston credit for this because I remember watching one of his programs. He said, if you want to get consistent results, the only way to do it is with a temperature probe. Right. You know? If you think that you're going to poke it and you're going to be able to judge its temperature and its accuracy like they did it, you're never going to get perfect results. The only way to know is to monitor the temperature and then use the temperature as your yeah. guide. Yeah. Right. So based on that, I went out and bought, uh, a, man, there's so many of them, so many of them right, that I've bought. <laughs> yeah. uh, but my, my, favorites, my favorites up to now have been the Inkbird 8 probe thermometer, fab, fab piece of kit, really? and the iGrill from Weber. When it came out two years ago, the iGrill was fantastic. It, it overtook the Inkbird, all right? But then a little gadget came out called a meter. 
all right? Uh, that's what and I so yeah. I, I looked at this, a meter, and um, you you got to check it out because these guys have really nailed it nailed right. it in every single way this is a uh, a wireless probe it has a little battery in the probe so uh, you can just kind of plug it into whatever you're cooking you push the probe into your kobe beef steak you set the probe uh, temperature to what you want it to be so for rare i like 53 degrees yeah. All right. But if you want to use the meter, the meter will tell you what it needs to be. They've got it all thing programmed out for you. So and does it incorporate really the resting time, Jake? It incorporates the resting time as well. No way. It's, it's all in there. It is an incredible device. Right. So you stick it in your piece of meat, you stick it in the oven. All right. And you literally forget about it. Now, they've got three probes. They've got the meter, the meter plus and the meter block. All right. Um, my meter block arrived yesterday, so I'm like a kid at Christmas. Oh, can't wait to start cooking. How much was that? And that's got four probes. Uh, 200 and, 280 pounds down yeah, from 450 last year, I think it was. And the meter plus has come down from 150 last year to 99 pounds at the moment. Okay. So definitely check it out, right? Meter plus, and don't go for the standard meter because when you're using a wood fired oven, it's in the garden. Right, the meter plus has a range of 50 meters and it sends the signal to your phone, uh, all right? And right. then your phone can link to your iPad. So, in actual fact, wherever you have a wireless signal, you'll get that alarm, which tells you. Now, the great thing about the meter plus, right, and the great thing about this product is it records two temperatures it records the temperature at the tip of the probe, right, inside whatever you're cooking, yeah. and also the ambient temperature of the air around the probe. Okay. Okay. So it records both of these temperatures. Is that the oven temperature then? The oven temperature. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But oven temperatures can be hit and miss. Yeah. Because uh, you know, it, what's the temperature at the front of the oven, at the back of the oven? Exactly. Six inches off the floor, eight inches off the wall. You don't know. Whereas the meter plus is recording the temperature right at the thing you are cooking. Right. All right. So it is a fab piece of kit. And uh, yeah, it is, it is my number one gadget to go to. If somebody's looking for a Christmas present for anybody who has a wood-fired oven, I always say, can't go wrong with this. Can't well, go wrong with so this. So you could tell, listener, dear listener, that this stuff, once you start getting into it, is, we could talk about this literally all day. And, but I want to take it back before we finish to um, remind people just to help Jay as well, that he's got this new Santorini, which has taken a lot of the pain out of, uh, out of wood-fired ovens because you can get it in kit form and build it in an afternoon and it will allow you to cook yeah. on it for, for hours and hours and hours. But first, let me set the scene because I want to tell you what it's all about really for me. And that is, as Jay says, you come outside um, after a day or whatever on a Sunday, whenever you've found some time, and the thing that really demonstrates to me what it means to me is when I had the book published last September, I spent about a month on the road pushing it, selling it, signing copies, and I was absolutely frazzled. And I came back home, and I didn't really know what to do with myself. I was all sort of discombobulated and all over the show. And then I lit the fire and went and stood outside next to that, and it was cold. It was like winter, so I had a coat and that, and it was getting dark. And there was not a soul anywhere. Nobody comes out at night, especially in the winter. They're all inside in their little boxes watching their tellies, except me. And I was outside watching the sun go down and listening to the birds go to bed and hearing that crackle of the flames and feeling it on your face. And that 
is absolute joy and that is what you're selling more than anything in my opinion jay i i tell you what it is to me you know uh family time now is so diluted with televisions and phones yeah. and apps and all the rest of it but there is something prim primeval about an open fire you know the success of the bushman wood fired ovens that are sorry the bushman burners that are made was that they united families you know when you sit outside next to a bushman burner and it's an open fireplace in the garden there is no television you know no. there is no distractions and one of the comments that have come back to me time and time and time again from my customers is that they said that the products that I make, the products that I develop, the products that I sell, bring families closer together. Yeah. Um, and the Bushman wood-fired oven was an extension of that because while you have a Bushman burner in the garden keeping your friends and family warm, you then go to the oven and you cook food for those people. Now, there is nothing like food to unite, bring people together. And you know, when you, you, you're capable of cooking great food and when you're capable of cooking food that most people can't cook in their own homes or gardens with a, an appliance like a wood-fired oven, then you have a social gathering which makes memories. And for me, <laughs> it's the memories that are created around a Bushman wood-fired oven which are the motivating and driving force for me because, you know, uh, they're... Time with family and friends is so precious. And if you can spend that quality time around food and eating, then there are no distractions like television when you're in the garden. You know, it's just the bird, the bird song and the chatter amongst you. Yeah. So, uh, you yeah. know, th that's what it's about for me. You know, uh, it was always challenging when I first got together with my wife to try and explain how we eat food in South Africa. If you come to a South <laughs> African barbecue, it's an all day event. You know, <laughs> um, uh, when I first came, yeah, when I first came to England and you had a braai or a barbecue, it was uh, cremate the food on an open fire. <laughs> yeah, as quickly flame, as possible. Keep the fire, yeah, keep the fire going strong with some lighter fuel that you keep squirting <laughs> underneath the, the food that you cook in. Then once it looks good and black, stick it in a warming drawer while you cook the rest of it and then serve it all at, all together. And, and then it'll rain. That just, that, yeah, that just wasn't the way that I did things. Um, so it, it's literally taken 20 years for her to kind of figure out that the way that I enjoy cooking food the most is one dish at a time, cooked to perfection, served over the course of a whole afternoon, you know. Um, and, and that's what it's about. And I, I think I invited you to come and make your own oven with That's me right. and i said uh, i can't make a bloody thing i'm hopeless i remember you saying that to me i think you also had to give up on your daughter's party or something oh, like that God, yeah don't remind me <laughs> yeah. and, and I, I know it created some ructions because you were coming out to make this oven with me and you weren't sure about it you weren't sure about it but we had an amazing weekend together you know i have now a great friend in you uh uh uh, and and yes, it, it's been an exciting path. And and I, I often wonder because you know most of my competitors, if a writer asks them for a product, would just send, simply send them one. But then it just becomes it's a different product entirely, isn't it? Yeah, it would just be a gadget in the garden. There would be yeah. no love in it. Whereas you, when you look at that oven of yours, you know you made it with me. You know it's your oven. It's not my oven. Uh, it's not something that you bought off the shelf. And so it will give you a lot more pride. Well, following that, 
you know, I was tasked by one of my mentoring groups to come up with an idea of a product that we could take into the next century, basically. And the biggest challenge that I have is that I still hand make every single oven here in the factory, personally that I sell. So every single Bushman Woodfire oven is made by yours truly. And while I'm on the phone to you now, I'm not making ovens and I have a list of ovens that I have to make. So uh, three years ago, I came up when I was in Santorini with my wife, came up with an idea on how I could make an oven that people could assemble at home themselves. And it's literally taken three years of development. We launched it last year. It's called the Santorini oven. Uh, It can be seen on www.santoriniaoven.co.uk. And this is a complete assemble at home oven. So you get all the parts, you get all the kits. And that's the one that I talked about that, you know, on two kilos of wood, you can get to 150 degrees. The heat retention in it is amazing. And it is a self-assemble oven. And we ship that out to you in a box uh, in all the pieces. There's no piece that weighs more than 25 kilos, so you can carry it through the house and into the garden. Okay. Uh, I, can assemble, I can assemble the oven completely in about two and a half hours, but I kind of suggest that you give yourself a day to do it so you can take your time. Yeah. You get a fantastic little video card. It is a, uh, a two-hour video of me assembling the oven. Uh, with the oven, it's the instructions of use, and you take that into the garden with you. So you have me there with you assembling the oven, right? And then at the end of it, you light it up, and the same day you can be cooking pizza. That's incredible. For those people who, for those people that have no DIY skills whatsoever, <laughs> as long as they have access into the garden, we can assemble the oven for them here and ship it as assembled product. But it weighs 150, sorry, 170 to 180 kilos. So you know you have to try and work out how you're going to lift that up onto your counter. Um, So if you've got access into the garden, you can have it pre-assembled by us. If you have limited access into the garden, then you simply assemble it yourself in the garden with my guidance and tuition in the video card. And that way you can enjoy the the benefit of a truly fantastic wood-fired oven that you can literally cook anything on. Amazing. Well, we need to let you make some more. But before, I wanted to say we'll definitely have to talk again because there's so much more I want to ask you. And also, um, I failed to mention uh, David and Holly down at Manor from Devon, who I would love to go down and, and spend a day and do a pod with them as well. So maybe we should all get together and have a massive cooker. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be fab. I mean, with regard to cooking schools in the UK, uh, if wood fired cooking is your thing, Uh, if you want to experience what it's about, if you're not sure if it's going to be something you'd be interested, but you've got a a tweaking of uh, an inkling of, you know, that it might be something you can't, you you aren't sure whether you want to spend 250 quid on an oven or three and a half to 5,000 pounds on an oven. Then before I even sell an oven to anybody, I would say to them, look, if you're unsure, please go and visit David and Holly at Manor from Devon. Yeah. First of all, they are wonderful people. They share the same level of passion as I have. Um, they've set up their uh, wood-fired oven forum, uh, which is if you just go on uh, the wood-fired oven club on Facebook, ask to join that. Okay. They, at the moment, through this whole COVID thing, uh, through the whole COVID thing, they are posting a challenge a week. They're putting up recipes and yeah. how to cook in the oven literally daily, which is just such a gift for anybody who has a wood fired oven. Brilliant, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, you know. But and and 
you know, right from the start, we help them with the, the wood-fired ovens that they have in the cooking school, the two Bushman wood-fired ovens, but they've gone on much further than that now. So they have a range of ovens at the cooking school, which they demo on. Um, so, you know, it's not just all about Bushman wood-fired ovens, okay? Now, I'd no, like to think that it was, but, but they, they kind of give you the just across the range of the different ovens that they have in stock there. After all, the market now is so big in the UK that I couldn't possibly sell ovens to everybody. And I'm very <laughs> grateful that there are competitors out there that sell uh, other ovens. Um, so, you know, you do have a choice now uh, and, and you can make an informed decision. But yeah, the, the manner from Devon Cooking School, without a doubt, first of all, you will have a fantastic fantastic weekend it'll be an experience that you'll never forget for the rest of your life you'll have some amazing food and david and holly make it look so easy (laughs) that's true that is so frustrating (laughs) incredibly easy all right um uh and effortless and when you can master cooking to the same degree as they have and make it look effortless, then, man, all you can do is impress your friends. And I promise you that when you get a wood-fired oven in your garden, all right, people queue. I get, I get calls. I get text messages literally weekly from people asking me when I'm going to be having a summer barbecue, you know, <laughs> when they can come round and, and, and eat my food. Um, uh, and, and yeah, that's what it's about for me, yeah. for me it is just fantastic times with friends and family. Um, and yeah, we are in difficult times now. So, you know, plan your garden now while you can, uh, so that when we get out of this, you've got something that you can really have a ball with. And remember this, that a wood fired oven is unaffected by the weather. So you can use it all year round. All right. You know, it doesn't matter if it snows on the oven it can still cook that turkey perfectly for Christmas. You know, it can still cook that per- pork perfectly for Christmas. So when you buy a wood-fired oven, you're not buying uh, a barbecue for summer only. You're buying an appliance that you can use all year round. Yeah, I can vouch for that, it's, Jay. I've cooked with snow on the roof. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mate, it's an absolute joy to have you with us. Thanks so much for your time. And you need to go and make some ovens to, to pay the pennies. But... Come back and talk to us again, will you? <laughs> I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to. Uh, nice chatting to you, Nick. And, you know, congratulations on your Around the World in 80 Cigars. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Those antidotes, um, uh, just, you know, it's like a pile of little short stories. And you can pick it up and you don't have to get immersed in the whole book. You just read like a story, a night type story, and it's fab. So congratulations on that. Uh, uh, you think I've had an interesting life, but after reading your book, I think my life pales in insignificance <laughs> in the adventures that you've had. Well, hopefully we'll have a few more together. <laughs> Good to speak. Cool, man. Cool. All the best, buddy. Thanks, Jay. Bye now. Bye-bye, bye. Cool. And that was the whirlwind. <laughs> Produce Jay Emery from Bushman Ovens. I hope you uh, hope you got some fun out of that. Once he starts, there's no stopping him. Next thing you know, a whole night's gone by. Lovely, lovely man, and uh, really interesting to talk to. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode. It only remains for me to tell you, as ever, that you can buy Around the World and 80 Cigars, the book, from all good bookshops, cigar stores, and lounges. 
you can order it online at www.nick-hammond.com and we will ship it to you wherever you are in the world hope you're all well look after each other guys stay safe speak next time Mm -hmm.